Father, we come in Jesus' name. And we seek to come through the indwelling Holy Spirit in our worship of you. We give you thanks and praise for the opportunity to praise you and to, through songs and through uh, even uh, from our hearts, Lord, to give you praise and adoration and thanksgiving for all that you have done for us in Christ. And we praise you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is the truth, that it is ever settled in heaven, and it is your word that we can trust because it comes from a true and living God. So we ask in Jesus' name that the Holy Spirit of God, who inspired this, your word, would inspire us and cause us to be drawn ever closer to you so that we might indeed walk with you and live for you and serve you with all of our being. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce has gone home to be with the Lord, but he wrote a book entitled The Foundations of the Christian Faith. And he comments on the results of the fall of man that is actually given to us in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. And he makes this point. He says, In the long history of the race, there have been only three basic views of human nature. They may be summarized as that man is well, or that man is sick, and that man is dead. In the first two views regarding human nature and man, they're based on basically a secular humanistic assessment. These two views are rather optimistic in their perception of people. For in both cases, the human nature is either basically good and will eventually improve, or the human nature is just reasonably sick. But it's not hopeless. So with proper care, maybe more knowledge, maybe even medical support to cure the ills and to rehabilitate, humanity will reach its true course. It will be attainable. However, in the final view, man is dead. We have the biblical view of man since his fall. Man's fallen human nature is not in a condition of being well, nor is it merely sick. Man is dead. And that's what Paul is bringing out in this passage. Man is dead in his sin. You'll remember earlier as we were dealing with the first chapter of Ephesians that Paul was explaining to us God's master plan of salvation and that his following prayer that is written for us to, 
to read and to be inspired by is asking God for more grace so that believers in Ephesus as well as in this church today may spiritually grow to know the eternal hope, the riches of the inheritance that we have in Christ, and the power of God that is on us and in us and through us as the redeemed people of God in Christ. But now, Paul explains how this gracious and loving plan of redemption is operative to bring salvation not only just to the Ephesians, but to us and to the world. And that's why when we read this opening verse in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul is making a statement that encompasses all of mankind for all of history and for all future history since the fall of man. He says very clear here that since the fall of man and original sin we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. This is an inherited spiritual condition. And everyone in the world is in that same condition. There are no exceptions, save one, and that is Jesus Christ. Paul says there in chapter 5 of verse 12 in Romans, he says this, Through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, for all have sinned. The two words that he uses here, trespasses and sins, are two Greek words. One is peritomoa, uh, Toma, which gives the idea of transgressing, uh, gives the idea of falling away, a deviation from God and his truth and his will for one's life. The second word is hemartia, and it gives the idea of missing the mark, not reaching the goal, if you will, a departure from the path that God has established, which was to be a path of righteousness, of following God, being in communion with God, living according His truth. In fact, Romans says there in Romans 3.23 that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul reminds the believers in Ephesus, but he also reminds us that before faith in Christ, we all conducted life in this way. The sin nature was upon us and in us and through us, and sinning was our way of life. We all formally walked in this condition of being spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. And he says here how much it is um, filtered out and permeated all of humanity and all of culture and all of society because he gives us three expressed conditions here. 
of what this means. It was according to the course or the age of this world. And as sinners, we naturally, in our sinful condition, set up our own values, our own rules of how we are going to govern ourselves. And it's all apart from what God has established. America is doing it very well today by changing all the rules that God has laid out in His Word, all the standards that God has placed in the Scriptures that tell us how we are to live and walk with Him. They are in many respects, we are living in a, in a country, in a nation that is in outright rebellion against God. They are living out that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. But the other thing he says here in verse 2 is that though this is the way we formerly lived, Indeed, it is something that those who are without Christ continue to live in. It's according to the prince of the power of the air, he says. And this refers to our adversary, Satan. And he has been permitted by God to be a ruler, to govern, if you will, the inhabitants of this world system, this fallen world system. He's also identified in John chapter 12, verse 31, as the prince of, the, of this world. In fact, if you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll see how he operates in the lives of those who are living in unbelief. Because he says here in verse 3 that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those that, who are perishing. Notice, in whose case the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But thirdly, he says this walk before Christ was one of a spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, which denotes this spirit of rebellion against God's rule, against God's will, against God's written standards. It is a spirit of unbelief that openly, flagrantly, opposes God. And it's in this condition that sinners are deceived. They're deceived with a false sense of security that they are free to think and to do whatever they want. That they're the captain of their own ship that they can go and do whatever they want, whenever they choose. And by this text, it simply is not true. It is very clear from this text 
that sin leads to death, separation from God. And the unsaved sinner is living within the confines of a sin-cursed and corrupted world. He is living under the controlling influence of the prince of this world, Satan, and he is living by a spirit of rebellious disobedience, and I might add, as enemies of God and incurring the wrath of God. The sinner's spirit is dead, has no communion with God. His soul is spiritually dying. The mind is deceived under the effects of sin and its nature on his life. It has a deadening impact. And his body is also dying by an advancing sin-cursed malignancy that will end in physical death. Paul says, verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul gives us another description of what it means to operate in this flesh, the spiritual deadness that he is referring to here. When he says there in Galatians chapter 5, he outlines for us in verses 19 through 21 what the deeds of the flesh are. Listen to what he says. They're evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. Boy, it uh, sounds like a real free life, doesn't it? And yet our world, our nation, is embracing many of these things and telling us that we can be free to do them without consequence, and nothing could be further from the truth. But let me ask you this question, because it may be uh, in your mind right now. Does this mean that humanity is so sinful that it is utterly depraved, as wicked as it possibly can be? Well, no. That's not what this means. Actually, when we think about it, there's a lot of things that we do naturally that may seem to be good. Um... But naturally, as sinners, we sin. But what is meant by what Paul is outlining here? It means that at the core of a sinner's life, 
Sin's corruption infects not only the spirit, but the mind, the will, the emotion, even the body, to such an extent that any alleged good deeds or good things that we might do, whether they be done by thought, whether they be done by our speech, or by our actions, they're all polluted, infected with sin. Because they're no longer done out of a love for God and a desire for His glory. Instead, they are done, if we really think about it, they are done for self, for self-gratification, for self-improvement, for self-preservation. And likewise, a sinner does not seek God. He does not want God. And there is no fear of God in his heart. Look with me at Romans chapter 3. I was going to present this in our reading, but let's look at it right now. In Romans chapter 3, in verses 10 and following, we read how Paul assesses the sinfulness of man. Listen carefully. He says right from the outset, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. And here's the kicker. There is no fear of God before their eyes. As the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy garment, and all of us like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind takes us away. Paul is saying here that formerly we were living in what would be considered spiritually a dead condition, hopelessly and helplessly under sin's curse, lusting after fleshly passions, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind to satisfy an insatiable appetite of our sin nature. And he concludes here, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, 
but God. They are the most wonderful words that we can hear at this stage of Paul's letter. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, loves us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God's rich mercy, his compassion, his compassion that that has him condescend and show pity on sinners like us who are miserably enslaved by sin, guilty of all those violations against God's moral code, dead in our sin, justly condemned by a holy God, by His justice. But God, because of His great love with which He loved us, and notice Paul is adding himself in this. He sees himself being the one that has received God's rich mercy of God's great love. That even dead in our transgressions, God has made us alive together in Christ. By grace, we have been saved. God's miraculous conversion of us being dead in our sin to become saints from one justly being condemned by God for our sins and our transgressions of him to us. He has rescued us from sin. But only by the penal atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was true of Paul. It was true of the people of Ephesus. And it is true of us and true today. God's mercy pouring out his compassionate mercy upon us who weren't deserving of it. God's great love, this agape love that God wants to give out, and despite our sin and and our deadness in it, He wants to make us alive in Christ. God's grace, so boundless in the love of God, so boundless in its giving out, if you will, to sinners like us. It's outpouring to undeserving, the guilty, He gives pity, pardon. He saves us in Christ. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, verse 3 says this. The Lord appeared saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Or in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, we read, By this, the love of God was manifested in us, 
that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And one we use often in the liturgy, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But he not only redeemed us and made, him, made us his own, but he's also seated us with Christ in the heavens. Notice verse 6 and 7. And raised us up with him and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you see it, beloved? We who were once dead in our transgressions have been made alive spiritually, eternally, eternal life in Christ. We're at union now in Christ together. And as Jesus Christ was resurrected and exalted into heaven after his suffering and death and burial through the cross, as he is seated at the Father's right hand, so are we too, positionally seated with Christ. We are his redeemed bride. And as his redeemed bride, we are most assuredly going to be raised up with Christ Jesus, our groom, to be seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. His resurrection, his exaltation, guarantee our bodily resurrection and exalted position before him in glory at the end of the age. Notice what, how Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8. And verse 30. Let's start in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. But there's not only that point that needs to be made here because Paul shows that he says, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus in a unique way of God's plan, eternal plan of redemption, of salvation in Christ, 
God is saying that the surpassing riches of his grace toward his people are going to be demonstrated for ages to come. The kindness of God towards his people are going to be witnesses. They're going to be witnesses to the world of God's loving, saving work so that others who don't know Christ may be so graced by God through his people so that they too, as they hear about it, as they hear about the hope that is within us, may be so graced to trust in Jesus through the gospel as well. God's grace, his love in Christ will press on even unto eternity, both for the redeemed as well as the observing angels in heaven. Well, as Paul alluded to in verse 5, that it is by grace that we're saved, he sort of expounds on that in verses 8 through 10. Familiar verses, but read them with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, Paul is expounding on this surpassing riches of God's grace toward us. Salvation in Christ is God's gift to sinners. Salvation is God-planned. It's God-initiated. It's God-purchased. It's God-secured. And it's all for God's glory. And therefore, Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone. As we believe in the gospel of Christ alone, this is part of God's gift of salvation for each one of us. The faith that saves us, even it itself, is God's gracious gift. Why? So that as a result... It will not be of works, so that no one may boast. No one can take any credit for his or her salvation. For no human effort can earn it, and no human effort enters into it. It is all of God's doing by his love, his grace, his Son. It is a gift of God. Salvation from beginning to end is God's gift to us. We are totally God's handiwork in his salvation through Christ. We are not saved by works, but we are saved unto good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, let us receive 
anew and afresh God's master plan of salvation in Christ. Recognizing that it is God's love gift that graciously saved us from our spiritually dead condition through faith in Christ alone. As God's new creation, though, we must remember that we are endowed with spiritual power, gifts, even spiritual wisdom and insight to perform His good works, which are indeed the fruit of our saving faith in Christ. Faith in Christ is always a living faith. It's growing, and it's growing to maturity. It's bearing perennial spiritual fruit through the presence and by the power and fruit of the Holy Spirit and in obedience to God's Word. These prepared works of God we are to walk in and so glorify our God in heaven. Amen.